Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is the exhibition Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America, and coming up, the Armory Show at 100 Modern Art and Revolution, which will open on October 11th. And we're going to give, we're going to give some, we're doing some beautiful programs with the Army, and one in giving historical context to that period will be our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which will open on October 18th with a screening of All Quiet on the Western Front with author Cottie Martin and New Yorker film critic David Denby providing opening remarks. So if you haven't received a film flyer uh, yet, we have them right out the door as you leave, so pick up a film flyer. We have a great film series coming up as well as all our wonderful programs. So just curious, we always ask how many people are members with us tonight? Almost everyone. So those few people, the two people who are not members, we invite you to become part of the family. There's great benefits, great discounts, and um, come to the VIP members openings, and we hope you'll join. I just want to ask before we begin introducing the program if you have an electronic device or cell phones to just turn them off. And just note that photography is not permitted or recordings with the exception of our New York Historical Society photographer. So tonight's program, Lincoln Citadel, the Civil War in Washington, D.C., is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to the New York Historical. So let's give Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz a hand. Additionally, I'd like to recognize and thank New York Historical Trustees in our audience tonight, Lon Jacobs, welcome, and Carl Mengus, welcome. Thank you so much, and all the Chairman's Council members in our audience for all your good work and support. Let's give all of them a good hand. <laughs> the program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so the speakers on stage and everyone else in the audience can hear you. And we're also recording it, and it won't get recorded on our podcast unless you speak into the mics as well. And following the program, please join us for the book signing with Harold Holzer and Kenneth Winkle, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Kenneth J. Winkle, who is the Sorensen Professor of American History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and co-director of the Civil War Washington Digital Project. An acclaimed Lincoln biographer and Civil War historian, he's the author of numerous award-winning books, including The Young Eagle, The Rise of Abraham Lincoln, which is considered the standard account of Lincoln's rise to power. His most recent book is Lincoln Citadel, The Civil War in Washington, DC. And I just have to find Harold's bio here sticking to Kenneth Winkle here. And we are also delighted to welcome back Harold Hultzer, who has done so much beautiful work with us. Um, he will continue through the spring and beyond. 
our moderator, who is our moderator for this evening. Harold Holzer is a Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He is the author, co-author or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, and in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served as a content consultant to Steven Spielberg's film, Lincoln, and his latest book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of 50 objects from the New York Historical Society's collection. So now, please join me in welcoming Kenneth Winkle and Harold Hultzer. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's, um, it's an honor to be the opening act in Dale's program. How about a round of applause for the woman who puts together all of these programs, Dale Gregory. Thank you all for coming on this summer evening in October. Um, I'm so glad to have this opportunity to uh, sit down with a historian I admire very much, but don't get to see that often we have Lincoln in common, but his Lincoln, as you heard, is in Nebraska, so it's a little difficult. <laughs> but his book, The Young Eagle, which Dale mentioned, is really one of the very best biographies of Lincoln's formative years. He's also recently issued um, for a series of brief books published by Southern Illinois University Press, a very fair, judicious, and lively book about the Lincoln marriage. Um, Lincoln Citadel is what we're talking about tonight. A really engrossing book about the city where Abraham Lincoln made history, where he tried to make history as a young congressman, and where, of course, he ultimately made history as president of the United States. Ken fills his book and I'll begin asking him about it in a minute with um, wonderful stories, very compelling stories about Lincoln's routine, unexpected tidbits. I learned a lot from the book. I was telling him backstage things I didn't know about and will immediately purloin with credit for my next book. Um, some nice overlap there. And um, it's always a little story that I love in his work, and I want to start with one of them. Um, how many people here, how many members saw the Lincoln movie? Almost as many as there are members. Well, you all saw the scene of Lincoln telling his scatological joke in the telegraph office, right? Um, the White House didn't have a telegraph office. It was in the War Department. And we all knew, all of us who wrote about Lincoln, Lincoln went to the War Department for to get his messages, but nobody ever found the means by which he went until Ken uh, did. I was just enchanted by the story. So tell us about the path, the path to high-tech communications for Abraham Lincoln. It was very pleasant. <laughs> Good. There was a brick wall, it was a low brick wall, and despite constant security concerns voiced most urgently by his wife, Mary Lincoln. When Lincoln walked along the wall, 
his head and shoulders protruded over the top of it. It was lit by gas lamps because Lincoln traveled impulsively back and forth. And it late at night occasionally, and, right? Yes, at all hours. He went to the War Department uh, at least once, sometimes twice a day, or more, of course, during an important battle. Um, there was a stone paving. He was always accompanied by bodyguards, one on either side. They were police officers, but he insisted that they wear plain clothes so as not to call attention to his vulnerability as president, which he was always downplaying, unfortunately. Was it along, I, I'm, just, I'm still trying to picture it, along 14th Street or where? It, the War Department is where the Executive Office Building right. sits. So it ran between the White House so to it's the west. Parallel to Pennsylvania. Yes. Amazing. And his bodyguards always expected an attack along that pathway, but it never happened. So now you all know. So one threshold question before we go back in time and start more at the beginning. Why on earth did they never equip the White House with a telegraph office? Oddly, I found a reference in one of the newspapers at the time announcing that a telegraph line had just been run to the White House, but that's the only clue in... When was the just at the end of his life? At, at the beginning of the war, really? but that's the last I've ever heard of it. I always it, thought maybe he liked the camaraderie of the War Department. I mean, it's a new setting, new group to entertain. Anyway, it's a strange story. But let's go back in time. 12 years or so to Lincoln's first time in Washington. And he arrives as a freshman congressman, of course, um, a one-termer, as it turned out. Um, what was the, the Washington that Lincoln encounters in 1849? It's a slave city, isn't it? Washington was a southern city in every sense of the word heavily dependent upon slavery for labor. And it wasn't just a slave city, it was one of the largest cities in the South, and a slave market. Uh, the interregional slave trade was sending thousands of slaves yearly from the East Coast, where the cotton and tobacco culture was waning, to the new fresh lands in the Southwest, Natchez, mm -hmm. New Orleans. And most of those slaves came through Washington. So the city was dotted with so-called slave pens where the slave traders housed the slaves so that- Punished the slaves. Punished. Um, there were iron chains screwed into the walls, dank cells in basements. Uh, the hotels had slave pits for their guests so that they could check in with their slaves and sleep well because they knew that their, their slaves were under guard. Uh, there, was a, there were slave stands 
throughout the city, including one on Pennsylvania Avenue, just north of the Capitol, where public auctions took place. And In the year that Lincoln arrived, it was still Yes, there. yes. Of course, the Compromise of 1850 prohibited the public sale of slaves mm -hmm. in the Capitol, but did nothing to um, undermine the institution of slavery itself. Is the legend, or perhaps you'll say fact true, that from his back bench uh, on the uh, Whig side, allegedly near a window, that Lincoln could see a slave pen? Yes, the largest slave pen in Washington was called the Yellow House. It was painted yellow. It sat just south of the Smithsonian Castle, which had just been built, and it was in full view of the House Chambers. Now, what you described um, a culture that you identified with a term that generally came into broader use in the um, Reconstruction era, the Black Codes, but there was a code of restrictive conduct for free African Americans yes. as well. Uh, even those who were employed as, as servants in the city. So maybe you can describe that also. The most important component of the Black Code was the curfew. It was 9 p.m. Slaves and free African Americans had to vacate the streets. The police, as a major function, patrolled the streets and enforced the, the curfew. They would arrest. African-Americans who were still outdoors, uh, when they were convicted of violating the curfew, they worked off their fines uh, as prisoners. In essence, they were turned into temporary slaves to work for the city. So this is the culture that Lincoln encounters. and. He moves into a boarding house um, that sits, uh, well, first he moves into the Indian Queen Hotel for a few days, right? It's a pretty expensive place. So, And Mary is with him, and Robert Lincoln, and their little son, Eddie, who would not live very long after their return. And ultimately, they settle in a nice photograph, by the way, in the book. You all should go buy the book after that to, to see the pictures and get and, and read this narrative. But, Surprised again, I must have seen a picture of Spriggs Boarding House in my days of research, but I guess I didn't realize it was such a long row of houses and it was just one in a row of townhouses. But so how, do we know how Lincoln finds out that's the place for Whig yes. congressmen to go? Because they're segregated by party. Whigs don't live with Democrats and vice versa. Sort of like today. <laughs> There were five row houses directly across the street from the Capitol. Mrs. Briggs' boarding house sat where the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress mm -hmm. is located today. Right. The buildings were owned by Duff Green, who was initially a Democratic politician, a confidant of yeah. Andrew Jackson, a newspaper editor. He had a falling out with Jackson and became a Whig for the rest of his life. Related somehow to Lincoln by marriage, some cousin-in-law. 
He was a distant relative of Mary Lincoln's, yeah. so an in-law. So did he, did he direct him to Spriggs, do you think? Yes. Um, Mrs. Sprigg was a Virginian. She ran a Whig boarding house, and I suspect Duff Green would not have had it any other way. Location was the primary value of a boarding house. This one was literally 100 feet from the door of the yeah. Capitol. So Lincoln could come and go uh, quite easily, and uh, he could mingle with other Whigs. There were up to 13 Whigs staying at Mrs. Sprague's at any given time. And um, they took meals together. Right? Yeah. They had a single room upstairs. Mary described it as a large and pleasant room. And, um, but no office space, right? Lincoln, as a congressman, I think it's interesting to know there were no congressional office buildings. Lincoln basically worked at his desk in the Capitol or somehow in his room at Spriggs. There was direct mail delivery to the congressmen's boarding houses. So there was a, an outgoing mail in the evening and an incoming mail in the morning. And many of the members sat in their rooms night and day uh, plowing through the yeah. rather burdensome paperwork that they had to do. But most, not all of them had young children there. Most of them did not bring their families. Right. Lincoln did, and it was always difficult for him to live without his wife and, of course, his boys. And they, difficult they were... for him to live with them as well. <laughs> I mean, he writes this great letter to Mary um, after Mary returns after the first session, because it's too difficult. And he says something like, um, um, many, uh, those who like you have asked about you and those who don't say nothing, you know, in terms of the people she left behind. But it must have been difficult. Not much for Mary to do, for one thing. No, except shop. And right. she, Good shopping town. Yes, and she uh, began her habit of right. shopping um, as a congressman's wife in Washington. She stayed a month and then decided to leave, I think at Lincoln's suggestion. Um, during the second session, however, he asked her to come back, and she did. She, she brought the two boys. So alone the first time, and then with the, they left the boys with the, her family the first time? No, no. Oh, the boys were there both times. Yes. Yeah. The, the other strange thing Lincoln does when they're apart is he writes and says, write to me and tell me how much you weigh. I found that very peculiar. <laughs> But obviously he thought either she was not taking care of herself or taking too much care of herself. But so it's, it, this, this boarding house scene is very consequential because there is a story, uh, an event that takes place in the boarding house when, and I think it's meaningful because again, the landlord, Duff Green, has something to do with its resolution. And that is a waiter who is working in the house, a free black, uh, is suddenly apprehended by slave catchers and dragged away to the horror of people. You, you said that Mary wasn't a witness to that, that she was... It, ha it happened the day after she left town. Yeah, I'm glad you corrected that. But that's an assumption I made that she witnessed it. But the house was obviously abuzz with, with the story, and it was something of a cause celeb in Washington? Yes. The servant was Henry Wilson, 
Mrs. Sprague didn't own slaves, but she hired slaves. And about a third of the slaves in Washington were hired out. Their owners collected a monthly income. Henry Wilson was married to Sylvia Wilson. They had a 10-year-old son. She was free. So he was technically not free. He was a slave. So Lincoln lived in a slave house. He was waited upon by slaves. He was buying his own freedom, something of an installment plan for $300. And the two were working together to buy his freedom. She had already obtained hers. They had $15 left to pay, and his owner sold him at the last uh, minute for $300. The slave trader from the Yellow House brought in two henchmen. They grabbed Henry Wilson, threw him in shackles, and carted him off oh, a quarter mile to the Yellow House for sale further south. The guiding personality in Mrs. Briggs' boarding house was Joshua Giddings, the fiery abolitionist from Ohio. In fact, he called Mrs. Briggs' boarding house Abolition House mm -hmm. because he wanted to use it to end slavery, at least in the District of Columbia. And he, he did his best. Giddings outraged the next morning, strode onto the floor of the house and introduced a resolution to abolish slavery in the district and used Henry Wilson's abduction as a case in point. But it was Duff Green who came to the rescue with legal assistance, right? Surprisingly, Duff Green was a southerner. He was a slave owner. When the Civil War began, he went south to Georgia. He produced half of the iron mm -hmm. that the Confederacy used in its railroad tracks and its weapons. But he intermediated between Giddings and the slave trader. He worked a deal and helped to release Henry Wilson. As a lawyer, he took cases in which slaves were petitioning for their freedom. And at the time of Henry Wilson's abduction, Green was working to free a 10-year-old girl who was being illegally held as a slave. It's a, I mean, I could spend the entire evening talking about 1849-50, but we should move on because I know you all want to hear about Civil War Washington as well and Lincoln's experience there. So he comes back rather ignominiously in 1861 after the episode in which he passes through Baltimore um, either in secret or in disguise, depending on what newspapers you read in 1861. Um, not an easy entrance, but had, how much had the city changed? What, when Lincoln registers at the Willard, or at Willard's as it was called then, is it a different city than he had seen a, 10, 11 years before? The only difference is that slaves could no longer be bought and sold in public. But it was still a slave city. Yeah. Abolitionists targeted Washington for emancipation, 
they called it the grand point of attack. If they could end slavery in Washington, it would perhaps precipitate the downfall of the institution across the South. At the same time, Southern slaveholders called Washington the entering wedge of abolitionism. So they clung to slavery in Washington at all costs, fearing that this was the opening of the floodgates of freedom that would sweep across the South. And if you read Frederick Douglass's comments on DC compensated emancipation when it comes a year later, he reacts as enthusiastically as he did when emancipation came and when the 13th Amendment came. So it obviously has enormous symbolic meaning. So Lincoln gets to this big city, moves into the house that's very run down, although he tells his wife it's better than any house we ever lived in. She gets a congressional appropriation to fix it up. Tell everyone about the one physical change that Abraham Lincoln made to the White House. Lincoln was besieged by office seekers, pardon seekers. Everyone wanted favor something. Favor seekers, that was my favorite term he used. <laughs> from, favor from seekers. Him. And other seekers, he said. The White House was very open. You could walk in the front door. There was a doorkeeper at the front of the house. There was a messenger standing outside Lincoln's office, which is now the Lincoln bedroom. But in between, the public had the run of the house. Ted Lincoln would go from um, to the visitor. from from one visitor to another, uh, requesting a nickel, <laughs> influence peddling. In other words. He said that this is for the wounded soldiers, but I'm not sure that the <laughs> coins ever made it to that destination. Um, Lincoln had an open door policy. He started by um, keeping five uh, office hours a day. He cut that back to three by the end of his uh, presidency. He would see anyone. To my knowledge, only two visitors were ever ejected from the White House. And they were, they were taken away by the bodyguards who uh, thought that they were mentally ill. Lincoln never asked anyone to leave. Um, but when he went from his office to the family quarters, he was still visible and besieged, and that's when he did his little, his little wall, right? He added a glass screen that would allow him to walk down the central hallway to the family quarters without being seen or accosted. So that for once, a, there was a wall that was tall enough <laughs> to shield him. That was the only change that he made in the White House. He left everything else to his wife, Mary. Um, so was there a Republican takeover of Washington? Oh, heavens, yes. Um, and so we go past DC emancipation, but what was the impact of the Republican majority and the withdrawal of the Southern congressional delegation on this Southern slave city? A transformation. 
from a southern city into an essentially northern city. Witnesses said that virtually overnight the city was northernized. A host of reforms. Congress controlled Washington directly in peacetime. Lincoln could control it in wartime as commander-in-chief. Together, they formed a partnership. They reformed the city. For example, the corrupt police department, whose primary function had been policing slaves and free African Americans, was completely modernized. The Metropolitan Police Department was created. It's one of Lincoln's first acts as president. He appointed a five-member commission to run the police. The government, the federal government, paid the police so they could no longer be bribed. Lincoln appointed Richard Wallach, a Washington, D.C. mayor who had actually helped win the release of Henry Wilson in 1848 mm -hmm. as the president of the police commission. And he was a reliable, Republican and Lincoln ally and a strong unionist. Uh, Lincoln arrested the mayor, who was a Democrat, on unspecified charges. He was seized at 4 a.m. He, two hours later, was put on a train to New York City, and he was kept on an island in New York Harbor. Fort Lafayette? Yes. They told him. See, this is a way to avoid $20 million <laughs> runoffs. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> they, the, today's election day in New York, if you didn't know, Ken. I, I, had I don't think anyone knows, but it is election day. <laughs> <laughs> they told him that they would release him if he, if he resigned. So he did. And then Richard Wallach, Lincoln's ally, became mayor of the city and won the next two elections and ran the city uh, for the rest of the war. So were the black codes eased? Was transportation integration yes. achieved? Those things that you talk oh, about so yes. vividly. Um, that is a delightful story because of its culmination. Um, when the war began, Northern reformers, both white and black, flooded into the city. Uh, Sojourner Truth came from Michigan. She worked at one of the freedmen's villages to help the fugitive slaves, 40,000 of whom arrived in Washington during the war. To get there, she had to take the streetcar. The streetcars were segregated. Of course, she made it a practice of sitting in the whites-only car she was quite often ejected, uh, literally thrown out onto the street, and she helped to spark a campaign to desegregate the streetcar system. That was achieved one month before the war ended. It's an extraordinary, it's a pre-Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks story. Yes. It's extraordinary. Um, you spend a great deal of time in the book um, talking about Washington's sanitation issues. Um, wasn't the healthiest city in the world, was it? It was one of the most pestilent. Um, 
The British labeled it a hazardous diplomatic post for its ambassador. Right. Um, the worst feature was the Washington Canal, which was a canal in name only. There was no sewage system. The sewage ran off into the canal and then flowed into the Potomac. As one of the re wartime reforms, Potomac River water was pumped into the White House. They had two lavatories in the family right. quarters, as well as toilets, which was unheard of. But the pestilent river water was coming in. Quite likely, Willie contracted typhoid fever from the drinking water and tragically died. And that canal was close to, not too far from the White House, right? It was their backyard. And it, quite often it flooded almost up to the White House. And this is not only um, polluted as we would know it, but people dumped or dead animals were in the canal. I mean, it was grotesque during, beyond belief. During the war, Washington was littered with animal carcasses, and the city could not keep up. Um, chillingly, the poor bathed in the Washington Canal. Some drowned and added to the pestilence. Um, the not solely because of the sanitary commissions, Washington also became the world's largest hospital, didn't it, during the war? Washington began the war with one public hospital. Within two months, it burned down. When the first casualties came in, makeshift hospitals went up. They were tremendously unsanitary, but there was no other place to receive the wounded. During the course of the war, between 100 and 200 hospitals appeared. And it's possible that the Army treated one million men in its hospitals in Washington over the course of the war. At the high point, there were 63,000 sick and wounded men in Washington's hospitals. Uh, and Washington was a city of 60,000 when the war began. So the population had doubled through the arrival of sick and wounded soldiers. Now, in addition, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things, tidbits that I read in the book, uh, was that one of the hospitals was located in the home of Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's lifetime rival who died in September 61. Was it just sort of requisitioning or occupying vacant buildings? Many buildings, uh, everything from churches to hotels to stables, were requisitioned uh, after major battles in the Virginia Theater. In his will, Douglas donated his home to a religious order, and they later sold it to the government. It became Douglas Hospital. Fittingly, a hospital to the east of the White House was later christened Lincoln Hospital. So Lincoln and Douglas squared off one, once again. One more time. What, what, is it true that there were also um, makeshift hospital and nursing stations in the capital and in the 
um, the other building, the patent office where Lincoln's inaugural ball was held as soon as it was built. Yes, in the White House, the East Room was turned into a hospital ward really? at one point. You know, when they built the, um, the atrium between the National Portrait Gallery and the National Museum of American History down in Washington, which is the patent office building that was built uh, just before Lincoln arrived in Washington, they were certain that they were going to find evidence of, of amputated and buried limbs there. Um, probably disintegrated in 150 years, but the rumors were that on the same second floor where uh, Lincoln's inaugural reception was held, amputations were performed and limbs sort of casually tossed from the second floor window and put in a pit. But if true, it never, but I'm sure it, it happened because as you say, everywhere. I didn't know the White House too was a, was a hospital. And did Lincoln and Mary, as reported, visit wards often? Yes, of course it was difficult for Abraham Lincoln to visit incognito. He, he did go to the patent office and he witnessed the amputation of a soldier's arm. In the patent office? Yes. Um, of course, surrounded by the sick and wounded, he developed a very strong sympathy and compassion for the soldiers. Uh, had the capital not been Washington, uh, Lincoln would have been at a far remove from the human tragedy that was occasioned by the war. Mary Lincoln visited incognito, and so we're not sure how often she went to comfort and nurse wounded men. Uh, my, my favorite story is that she visited a soldier, James Agin, several times. And on one occasion, she wrote a letter that he dictated to his mother. She mailed it. When Agin recovered and went home, his mother produced the letter. He read it for the first time, and it was signed Mrs. Abraham Lincoln. And he had had no idea that that was Mary Lincoln who was visiting and sitting by his bedside. Um, and you, you also report that among her other philanthropic endeavors was um, making sure that flowers and greenery that was made in the new greenhouse was sent to soldiers. We know that Abraham Lincoln sent a lot of the gifts of food, particularly spirits that he received to the soldiers. So obviously a big concentration of their time and effort. And it was dangerous too, because a lot of these soldiers were confined because of communicable disease, not just... Two-thirds of all so, uh, hospitalized soldiers in the Civil War were suffering disease, not wounds. Mm -hmm. So it was not, it was a dangerous, there were malarial wards, et cetera, so. But speaking of the patent office, Clara Barton was in Washington because she was the first female clerk in the federal government, and she was assigned to the patent office. She won the position because she had such a beautiful hand, her handwriting. So she saw Lincoln? She worked in the patent office. She saw Lincoln, but she was also moved by the suffering of the man when uh, the patent office became a hospital. And this is what emboldened her to take up nursing 
as a career. And that, of course, led her eventually to found the American Red Cross. Mm. So without the takeover of the patent office, who knows? Amazing. And so it's a town filled with the sick and wounded, um, favor seekers, office seekers, and other seekers. And one other element that I just want to get to before we turn to questions, and that is Washington becomes a huge military encampment as well. So tell us a bit about the building of fortifications and the number of uniformed people that you see in the city. Up to 100,000 soldiers occupied Washington at any one time. There weren't enough barracks, so they camped in tents. And it was said, if you looked out of the Capitol, you could see a circle of tents um, three miles in radius surrounding the city. Um, soldiers bivouacked in the East Room, on the, on the White House lawn, anywhere they could pitch a tent. So they there were did tents so. on, the, in, on the White House property? Yes. And in his, in his country home, too, in this, at the soldiers' home? Yes. And, and what about the fortifications that were built? They were built pretty quickly to ring the Capitol. Yes, a 68-mile ring of fortifications. There were um, almost 100 forts and artillery positions, 800 cannons, 20 miles of trenches. By the middle of the war, it took two years to build. Washington was the most heavily defended city on earth. The outer perimeter was guarded by two soldiers for every three feet to prevent an, an attack and an invasion of the city. And of course, Washington was attacked in the summer of 1864, and the defenses held. And on that occasion, Lincoln rushed to Fort Stevens to watch the battle. Of course, bullets whizzed by, and he had to be dragged down out of the line of fire by a common soldier. So do you believe it was Oliver Wendell Holmes? <laughs> and do you believe he said, get down, you damn fool? I believe, sure. <laughs> so, who might have doubt a Supreme Court justice? And he's the only president ever to come in, come yeah. before enemy fire. Yes. And if you visit and this spot today, and you see where the snipers were, they were close. It was like just across the fort to where the stores are now. And it wasn't much of a fort either. No, it's not much of a fort. It's really a big breastwork, isn't it? But Mary Lincoln went out too. Yeah. It was a tourist attraction. She went out the next day, right? After the damn fool had stood up <laughs> with his stovepipe hat in and, and the soldiers knew who he was, I would reckon. They recognized him. And this was five miles from the White House. That yeah. is how close the Confederacy got to the center of the Capitol. So you, you talk about two other occasions, I think, after um, Second Bull Run and during the Peninsula Campaign, when Lincoln pondered whether to let all of the defenders go with McClellan to the Virginia Peninsula, and Lincoln wisely held back a unit. McClellan blamed him for sabotaging the campaign. Do you believe Washington was ever, because of this incredible 
fortification system, was it ever under, was it ever in danger? I suppose if a big, bigger, big enough force could be summoned, but it sounds like it was pretty well defended. At the beginning of the war, it was entirely undefended. The nearest fort was 50 miles down the Potomac, Fort Washington, and it was unmanned. So the danger came very early, but soon passed. And in fact, in the last two years of the war, Lincoln courted an invasion toward Washington to draw Lee's army away from its base in Richmond to make it more vulnerable. And of course, the result was Antietam in 1862 and Gettysburg in 1863. Um, Lincoln does spend a great deal of time, particularly in the summer, and then increasingly so during his presidency at the summer retreat, which is now a, a museum and a visitor attraction. Um, do you think it, and he became a commuter. This is five months a year. Do you think it was because of the crush of the public or did he like country living? I mean, what is the attraction as you see it? The initial attraction was to get away from the White House, the scene of Willie's death. So the Lincolns began summering at the soldier's home in the uh, uh, spring and summer of uh, 1863. Uh, Lincoln loved the commute. He rode a horse that had been donated by soldiers. They, they called the horse Old Abe in his honor. And he would take off alone without bodyguards. And it was a 30-minute ride. Uh, of course, he exposed himself to the threat of assassination or kidnapping. Through most of the war, kidnapping was the primary threat. And uh, on one occasion, he was nearing the soldier's home and a bullet went through his stovepipe hat. He took off, well, old Abe took off. The next morning he went out, he retrieved the hat. There was a bullet hole. Although no one ever knew whether it was friendly fire or a trigger, what do you call it, an itchy-fingered sentry or, or a real threat? Lincoln preferred to think that it was a hunter with, a, with bad aim. It's extraordinary that he survived as long as he did in certain ways. Yeah. But all, after that incident, he had a retinue of bodyguards and traveled in a carriage, right? Mary Lincoln insisted that he have a cavalry escort, which he hated. Well, the noise, yeah. Ostentatious, but he was at least uh, more careful. I want to ask one question about Mary, but I also want to invite anyone who has a question now to come to the microphones so that you can participate while I ask Ken just a couple more questions till you're, till you're here. Did you want to add something to yes. that? Yeah. The route of the escort went past uh, Walt Whitman's home. Mm -hmm. And Whitman made a point of going out and watching Lincoln, uh, going to and from the White House uh, every morning and every I always evening. I always think that if you read Whitman's, if you read Specimen Days and read any of those accounts, he's almost imagining that Lincoln recognizes him after a while. He imagines him bowing from the carriage. Maybe a little exaggerated, but he did make a point of observing him. One question about, we've skirted around the Mary issue, so to speak, a bit. You, um, Mary is, you know, ever controversial, as all of you know. And um, 
Ken makes it a point of um, reminding us that Lincoln's two um, precocious private secretaries, John Nicolay and John Hay, later Lincoln biographers, um, fought bitterly with Mary, hated Mary, called her the Hellcat, and, um, but, but you, you, you sort of take Mary's side and, and sympathize with her in those eternal disputes for control. They were battling for control of Abraham Lincoln. Tell me why you, I mean, I, t I, I tend to agree with you that they were sort of rude, young, unappreciative guys in that regard and a little jealous of her. Why do you take Mary's side after looking at all the evidence? Mary Lincoln took good care of her husband. She, I think, was a political asset, certainly before the presidency. She was a human face for the White House. One of her primary responsibilities was holding receptions. Lincoln loved meeting people and talking to people. He called the receptions public opinion baths in which he was bathed in public opinion, favorable or unfavorable, and he, he learned a lot. Mary Lincoln organized the receptions. It, until the Lincolns, there were no receptions. There were private dinner parties with dignitaries. Mary Lincoln opened the White House to the public. Uh, she paid a price. Of course, uh, vandals, uh, stripped wallpaper, uh, tore down drapes. And they, these are the new things that she had just paid for. Yes. Or we had just paid for, the taxpayer. And they cut buttons surreptitiously from her gown as souvenirs. But she made Lincoln accessible to the people. And I think that was important in helping him to frame policies, connect with the public, and I think on most occasions to do the right thing as the Civil War president. Do I remember just one quickie before we get our questions started? Um, I think you said that she made maybe one visit to the president's office early in the administration, never went back to the I, office? I think it was twice. It's amazing. She, she entered Lincoln's private and, of course, very masculine domain. In fact, Lincoln had a uh, working model of a hand grenade sitting on his desk. So he was very military. He was commander-in-chief. And uh, I think the Victorian separation of male and female spheres yeah. uh, held true on the second floor of the White House as well. Although she was in command of the first floor of the White House. Right. Well, she probably didn't want to visit if there was a live hand grenade there within his reach. <laughs> but I think you're right about the separation of spheres. I just find it astonishing that she made only one visit. Let's get to our first question here. Hi, good evening. My name is Jim Pasinich, and I'm a docent here at the New York Historical Society. My question deals with the attack, uh, the Jubal Early in 1864 with 10,000 troops put on a relatively undefended Washington, D.C. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? The defenses of Washington were deceptively simple. They were the design of John G. Barnard, who was the chief of ordnance of the Army of the Potomac. He, his philosophy was 
that the city didn't need to be defended ordinarily, but if a Confederate army approached, then the soldiers would man the battlements. If the enemy were approaching from the north, all of the men would go to the uh, northern stretches of the defenses and so on. So most of the time, the city was undefended. And even under threat, most of the city was undefended. I think it was a work of military genius to design a flexible defense, uh, a perimeter that need not be manned um, constantly, just when it was needed. And the repulse of Early's army demonstrated the wisdom of taking that approach, in my opinion. Steve. Uh, hi, I'm Steve Koppelman. Um, I was just wondering, when Lincoln returned to Washington now as president in 1861, do we know if he had any interaction with Mrs. Briggs? Was she still around? Did, they, did he see her? Mrs. Briggs' boarding house had been closed. Uh, in, in fact, that's a fascinating story, what happened to it during the war. It uh, became a, uh, a quarters for fugitive slaves. Um, a smallpox epidemic broke out, so it became the smallpox hospital. During that epidemic, they did the laundry at Mrs. Briggs, so it became a government laundry. And then at the end of the war, it became a women's prison. Most of the suspicious characters in Washington were women by the end of the war because so many of the male Confederate sympathizers left the city. And the women were arrested and uh, lodged in the former Mrs. Briggs boarding house. Um, Mrs. Briggs, as soon as Lincoln arrived, she asked, she wrote to him, asking for an appointment for her son. So she was one of those office seekers, <laughs> although a, in, in this Victorian culture, a woman would never join the long line of men uh, waiting to go in and see Lincoln. And Lincoln tried to find an appointment. He uh, wrote a note on her letter that she was a gracious woman and he had enjoyed living the, uh, in her boarding house. And can you please accommodate her request? Uh, I don't think we know uh, whether her son ever received the appointment. Sure. Let's go to this side. Sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Weeks, and I'm currently a student. And my question is in regards to um, an issue that you had brought up earlier about the uh, putrid conditions of the Potomac. And you said especially about how, spoke especially about how that was kind of the main source of drinking water for the White House, and that it was through that that uh, both Willie and Tad had contracted typhoid. But I was just curious, um, I guess whenever you read a Lincoln biography, you don't really hear much about either um, the president or Mary Todd 
or Robert or the aides or uh, Ms. Keckley um, uh, getting sick. And I'd imagine that they were also exposed to it. So I was wondering if you know they suffered uh, any kinds of afflictions uh, do that as well. I don't think there's a record of anyone but Abraham Lincoln and his uh, sons, Tad and Willie, falling ill. Tad contracted malaria and he took quinine for the rest of his life as a result. Um, Lincoln contracted smallpox. In fact, uh, a day or two after he returned from Gettysburg, he became sick. Um, he almost died. And as John Hay put it, the White House became a smallpox hospital for two weeks. Um, one of Lincoln's uh, servants, uh, an African-American, uh, uh, African William Johnson, went with him to Gettysburg. Um, he contracted smallpox as well, and he died. So that's how close Abraham Lincoln came to dying of disease himself, quite possibly simply by living in the White House. But at least he had one moment where he could come up with one of his best jokes from his sickbed. And that is when told that there was still a crowd of office seekers congregating outside his office, even when he was in a sickbed covered with a rash, he said, have them come in. Now I have something I can give everybody. <laughs> it's a good line. Um, Tad actually had the smallpox first before Lincoln went to Gettysburg. And Mary did not want Lincoln to go because she was petrified that Tad would die as Willie had. And he went and, of course, got sick on, actually got sick on the train. Coming back, William Johnson put the cloth on his head and hovered over him probably when he was most uh, contagious. You tell great stories by Johnson, by the way, um, more than I had known from the Washington book about his only being a part-timer at best and uh, still working in the, in the War Department. Yes? Were there any plans to preemptively move the capital further north or contingency plans in case the Confederates had taken it over? Before Lincoln arrived in the capital, there were suggestions that it might be vacated. Uh, to Philadelphia, perhaps. Um, Lincoln, even before becoming president, took control. And he quashed any hint of, re of retreat, of surrendering, su su surrendering the capital. Others suggested that he take the oath of office in Springfield and come to the capital late as president or that he um, come to Washington early and he said, I'm going to be the president and I'm coming openly. And of course, he took a 1900 mile rail journey into the city. He gave 101 speeches. Um, at the last moment, however, he became convinced that there was indeed a plot to kill or kidnap him. And so in the last 12 hours of a 13-day journey, he agreed 
to come in under cover of darkness and in disguise. I don't think he wore Mary Lincoln's dress as some of his critics charged. Not quite, not quite the right size, for one thing. And he, he later said, the way we skulked into the city was shameful. But I think that there really was a plot. He might not have arrived. I absolutely agree. Um, um, the only thing wrong with the story, and I still don't quite get it, is that Mary Lincoln, Robert, Willie, and Tad, and Hannibal Hamlin, talking about messing up your succession plan, all took the public route that Lincoln had abandoned. And their railroad car was menaced in Baltimore. They, people were pounding on the rail car. We all read about that the poor guy who was driving on, in, on the Henry Hudson last night, and people were pounding on his car, the motorcycle guys. That's what they went through, and he left them to do that, unless he didn't know what the plan was going to be. I found that bizarre. You don't have to defend Lincoln on that one. But it was, and people did write about it, the press. And you, you use one of the quotes, I think, in the book that some of the press said, but he left the children, his own wife and ch child, to go through the route. Very, very strange. Or ending on such a down note. Um, fair to say that the Washington Lincoln left was a totally different city, not only from the 1848 city, but from the 1861 city. More mature, more sophisticated, more diverse. When Lincoln arrived, and gave his first inaugural address. African Americans were banned from the Capitol building, the Capitol grounds itself. And of course now with the Library of Congress, we have newly discovered photos of the crowd listening to Lincoln's second inaugural address. And African Americans are in the audience, including Frederick Douglass. Um, at the second uh, inauguration, uh, the parade included a regiment of African-American soldiers, which would have been undreamt of in 1861. Um, in 1861, when Lincoln took his inauguration, he could look up and see Robert E. Lee's Arlington estate across the river. In 1865, it hosted Arlington National Cemetery, two forts, and a freedman's village for fugitive slaves. So a lot had changed. Lincoln and Congress had worked together to help make that happen. But of course, the residents of the city and the reformers who rushed to Washington uh, after the war began, uh, have to take a lot of the credit as well. But it was a different city and much for the better in 1865. You know, one of the most modest, maybe bordering on disingenuous things Abraham Lincoln ever said was that he never controlled events, that events had controlled him. I think anyone who reads Ken Winkle's extraordinary book will see how much he changed even the large sphere in which he worked, leaving it um, a different capital. Um, in the days when so much of our attention is on shutting down Washington, it's extraordinary to read about how it was opened up. And we thank Ken Winkle for bringing that to our attention. Thank you.